Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you are tuning in for the first time, keep up with us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And you can check out uh, prior episodes that you may have missed by going to RadioIslam.com. And also subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. We're on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, and TuneIn. Look for us there at Radio Islam USA. Make it really easy. All right, family. Uh, today, our guest in studio is Maya Dukmasova. Uh, she is a staff writer with the Chicago Reader uh, and primarily covers criminal justice and housing um, and, and more. Um, and we are pleased to have her in studio to talk about uh, a really thought-provoking uh, and timely article on CVE. Um, and it's entitled, The Problem with Public Health Approach to the problem with the public health approach to ideological violence. Very, 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 very interesting. So thank you for being here, Maya. Thank you for having me. So um, I'm going to go ahead, actually, and continue and give uh, the rest of that. Right. So there's a kind of a, a sub the subtext uh, here is uh, the countering violent extremism program is meant to stop terrorism and hate crimes before they happen. But critics say it's yet another excuse to spy on Muslims. So we have this program that has generated quite a bit of debate. Uh, there are some folks who have been uh, in, in favor of it, and, and of course, obviously, there are others on the other side. And we want to first kind of uh, begin the conversation with not so much going into the different points uh, where people are coming from, but looking at it in an overall uh, sense, looking at it from uh, as a program that began under the Obama administration, uh, a program that included not only um, Muslim organizations, uh, community organizations, but also had a focus on uh, addressing white supremacist um, organizations. Uh, not organizations, but organizations that are dealing with white supremacist ideologies. Uh, and contrasting that with the Trump administration and how it has responded, uh, what, its, what its impact has been with CVE. Could, so could we, could we begin there and kind of look at what are the significant changes that have taken place uh, under the Trump administration with regard to CVE? Sure, yeah. So um, I guess for those who aren't familiar too much with uh, with what CVE is, it's um, CVE stands for Countering Violent Extremism, which was this sort of awkwardly named uh, approach to counterterrorism, um, especially domestic counterterrorism that was developed under under um, Barack Obama's administration. And uh, it first kind of um, bubbled to the surface and, and took shape in 2011. And subsequently, um, there was a pilot program in Boston, uh, Minneapolis, and Los Angeles to sort of try this approach. And basically what it came down to was... Um, the uh, idea was that you could intervene with people um, who are kind of undergoing this process, this uh, kind of quote-unquote radicalization process, mm -hmm. um, who might be um, interested in um, kind of ideological uh, 
kind of drawn to some sort of ideologically inspired violence and that you could you could intervene with these people at a point before they commit these violent acts and sort of steer them onto the right path. And, um, you know, uh, the right away uh, when the pilot of this program was rolled out in the three pilot cities, uh, there were people who were very concerned about um, that this would be just another way to target um, young uh, Muslim men, mostly. And especially in Minneapolis, where there's a large um, Somali population, uh, these were young black Muslim men. Mm -hmm. And um, essentially, the, 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 the problem, as people saw it, was that this was a way to, while, like, on his face, the program was supposed to train, um, you know, mental health professionals, school counselors or teachers or administrators, like, people who who work with youth in a variety of different contexts, it was supposed to train them to recognize the signs of somebody potentially dabbling with, uh, you know, potentially joining, like, a terrorist organization like ISIS or something like that. Right. Um, uh, the, the the signs that people were supposed to watch for were sort of right away called out as like inherently sort of Islamophobic and 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 uh, kind of um, taking people down the road of racial profiling. So, um, but despite the sort of criticism that came up in the in the cities where the program was piloted, uh, the Obama administration stuck by the program and. Uh, put out a like a call for applications for a new round of funding for it in 2016, and uh, several dozen groups uh, in January of 2017, when Obama was on his way out the door, several different groups, uh, like a couple of dozen groups, got uh, grants to um, uh, through the CVE program to implement like locals sort of CVE strategies. Um, and these were law enforcement groups. These were um, government organizations and also some nonprofits. And some of the recipients at the time were also um, groups like uh, Life After Hate, which is a local, which was a, an organization funded founded here in Chicago that um, sort of explicitly worked with uh, trying to prevent people from joining white supremacist uh, groups and committing acts of violence through uh, a white supremacist framework. Um, so when uh, after uh, Trump was inaugurated later on in January, um, within a couple of months, uh, his Department of Homeland Security appointees um, reevaluated who the grants had been granted to and issued like a new uh, sort of revised list of grantees. So some people, including this group Life After Hate, which is local, um, uh, were no longer going to get this money. And uh, instead, the people who were sort of privileged were um, organizations that were doing this work, targeting people who might be joining, who they thought might be joining, like radical Muslim organizations. Um, so uh, the people who Trump brought in to lead his uh, Department of Homeland Security, as as many of us know, I think, are you know were were very openly and sort of blatantly Islamophobic. Wanted to very much advocated for you know that 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 we needed to talk about quote unquote radical Islamic terrorism more directly in 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 our sort of public discourse, and so. Um, once uh, the groups that were supposed to get funding to fight uh, the sort of white supremacist radicalization, once those were taken off the list of the CVE grantees, a lot of people kind of saw that as the administration moving this program more in the direction of focusing 
only on Muslims. You know, what I, what I find interesting here, uh, well, two things. One is the fact that uh, this happened in light of uh, um, um, uh, South Carolina, you know, with uh, Dylan Roof, mm-hmm. uh, in light of Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the fact that there was not, there, there doesn't seem to be a a real response um you know, and, and maybe this is, of course, not something that the average citizen is going to be paying attention to. You know, they're, they're not going to know who is being granted, uh, you know, who, who's a grantee and, you know, who's not, or who was taken off the list. But certainly from a standpoint of those that are in the system uh, and folks that kind of come to mind, like the Congressional Black Caucus, that uh, NAACP, these are folks that would ha- kind of be stakeholders when it comes to uh, combating violence that has at its root you know, white supremacy. Uh, so I'm, I'm surprised, you know, and I'm, I'm not certainly, I'm certainly not uh, looking for an answer from you on that, but I'm just surprised that there was not more of a, uh, you know, there, there was not a, it, there wasn't voiced, you know, especially from, from prominent uh, stakeholders who are in a position to kind of rally uh, the, the populace. Uh, so, uh, but, but let me go ahead and ask you about as far as the, this idea of looking for those who have been or on the way to radicalization. And one of the things that you, you wrote about, um, and I, thought, I think this is really important because it kind of screams of, of, of modern-day McCarthyism in a way, uh, where, uh, you know, where you're kind of, uh, you know, you, you're turning folks over. You're looking for uh, what are supposed to be signs, right, if a person becomes hyper-religious, right, and that can only mean that this person is somehow now anti-American. This person is now uh, on the way to violence, you know, and and there's no contextual analysis. And it also puts a certain uh, it puts the Muslim population in in particular uh, in a position where their legitimate grievances, uh, if they have critiques of, uh, you know, of the governmental system, uh, that they are now simply just relegated to being on the road to uh, you know, on the, on the road to, to radi- radicalization. Right. I mean, in a way, uh, the the problem uh, is that this was so signs, the signs of radicalization that were supposed to that people were supposed to be watching out for, such as, uh, you know, suddenly a young man grows a beard or starts uh, becoming more religious than he was before or, um, you know, is is openly critiquing U.S. foreign policy or is is something – sometimes it was stuff that was as nebulous as like having, you know, mo- mo- dealing with mood swings or um, just – For a teenager. Right. So, so, so the, these things were not necessarily uh, – th- they didn't necessarily mean – like the program didn't present these things as necessarily meaning that somebody was on the road to violence, right. but these were things that were sort of worth watching out for. And so there's this way in which it reinforces the idea that we should be suspicious of people, of teenagers who might be moody or growing a beard or going to mosque a lot or, you know, it, it kind of... Um, uh, exhibiting signs of what they call disaffection. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't know what you were like as a teenager, but uh, disaffected <laughs> was pretty much my entire life when I was a teenager. So, yeah. so, uh, yeah. so, yeah. So, so these were fairly nebulous criteria, and and the way that the um, the critics 
sort of see this issue is that um, it was a way to sort of, without saying, you know, watch out for young Muslim men becoming too political, it was a way to sort of connect, um, you know, markers, markers of, of supposed radicalization with uh, with a kind of expanded surveillance of of of, of Muslim or uh black immigrant populations. And later also the intention, I guess, was to also try to do something about, um, you know, try to monitor more when it was uh, young white people, like a Dylan Roof type of person who might be radicalizing. Um, But it was interesting in researching the story that the critics of the program say that it was sort of absurd to think that the program would have ever really done anything about white supremacy and white supremacist you know, radicalization or white, white supremacist violence because um, it is so interwoven with, uh, you know, the way that the government functions that it, it didn't seem realistic uh, that it would ever really, that there's so much in our culture and our society that reinforces and promotes white supremacy that it, it, I mean, some of the advocates I talked to just sort of found it laughable that the government was claiming they were really using this, that the program's goal was to really kind of um, try to dismantle white supremacist violence. Hmm. You know, that, that is interesting um, in light of the, the, the facts that the majority, I think it's like 98% or, or more, I don't want to go, go, go into a specific percentage, but the, the vast majority of violence that's been committed, mass violence that's been committed on uh, American soil has been committed by white men. Uh, not certainly not all with a um, with a white supremacist um, ideology, but and 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 of course that speaks to the mental health component um, of it. But there certainly have been those who have you know who have engaged those types of uh, ideologies, and to walk away. I think just in making an effort, making a show. Uh, of of being committed to addressing the violence that has existed and is often underreported, certainly not reported with the same type of uh, 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 veracity that we would expect or we're used to when it comes to violence that's uh, that's committed by, you know, immigrants or Muslims. Um, you know, e- even though that happens at a far far uh, lower rate. Uh, than it does, you know, we're talking about this the, the other population as far as uh, white men are concerned. Uh, do, do you think that, and I, I think, well, you didn't allude to it, you mentioned it, but in those that you have talked to who have advocated for this as a public health issue, um, do you, th- what has been their response to those organizations that are dealing or, or making it their mission to dismantle white supremacy or at least cut it off at the pass as, as far as uh, violence is concerned? Uh, what has been their response to the Trump administration's removal of those organizations that are working with those populations? Do they discount that um, as it, it was never going to work anyway? Or uh, are they pushing back and saying uh, against ideas or, or the aspersion that uh, the Trump administration is actually kind of giving a nod to say that we're OK with those who are on that side of the fence? You mean uh, the you mean the 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 proponents of CVE? What has their response been to the white supremacist groups getting cut out of the grants? Yeah, I mean, I look. I think that the people people were not people who are proponents of CVE. Uh, from my understanding, I mean, they were also up in arms when some of the grant funding was cut. I mean, 
uh, they're committed. My understanding from the the sort of what I've read out there is overall they're committed to this as a strategy that works, as a strategy that's not as invasive as sort of blanket surveillance and you know checking what people are looking at at the library and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't obviously say what everybody's reaction was across the country, but uh, my understanding is at least around here that like. No, like the, the like the people who are um, supporting CVE in Chicago and Illinois, they weren't happy that the you know that life after hate didn't get the money. Right. Um, even though, well, actually, so it was interesting because the life after hate grant, uh, half of it, half of the programming that was proposed for uh, the grant that they were supposed to get. Half of it was aimed at white supremacy, but then uh, another part of it was aimed at working with getting, um, you know, people out of kind of in ideological Islamic kind of framework. So stuff. So it was still focusing on on Muslims and it's quote unquote Islamic extremism, um, uh, while half of the grant was supposed to be for for folks working with white supremacists. So, and actually, just to go back to the point you just made about um, the majority of attacks of sort of like terrorism mm-hmm. domestically being being uh, perpetrated by, uh, n- not not by Muslims or people of color, sure. um, there was this, uh, so what prompted me to follow up, to like w- write this story um, and work on it now was because a couple of uh, weeks ago or last month, I guess, um, there was in a front uh, cover story in the New York Times magazine that was kind of a shocking image. It was like a picture of like a kind of some sort of like neo-Nazi rally. And there was just a list, like kind of a fine print list on the cover of every like kind of white supremacist attack in like recent uh, years that has happened around the United States. And the article was about how law enforcement sort of missed the signs of this growing white supremacist movement that was like kind of um, behind a lot of the attacks that were happening in, in recent years. Mm-hmm. And the article actually uh, paints CVE as like a, one of like a positive strategy that could have um, that could have prevented this from happening. And so the, the, that article definitely fits into the sort of rubric of CVE getting presented as an effective tool to fight white supremacy. But they did have some interesting statistics in here. And so what it said was, White supremacists and other far-right extremists have killed far more people since September 11, 2001 than any other category of domestic extremist. The Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism has reported that 71% of the extremist-related fatalities in the United States between 2008 to, and 2017, so just 10 years, yeah. were committed by members of the far-right or white supremacist movements. Hmm. Islamic extremists were res- responsible for just 26%. So, um, yeah, so your, your, your point is absolutely well taken that this is that, that, that white supremacy accounts for far more kind of ideological violence. Yeah. Uh, and from an empirical standpoint, um, I mean, the numbers are there, right? You know, we see this and we know that uh, violence against um, or, yeah, violence directed towards uh, synagogues and mosques, you know, it has uh, it has increased uh, during the presidency. Of, uh, of of Donald Trump, right, uh, and and we know that th- there definitely is some analysis that has to go along with that. You know, where folks feel more emboldened. Uh, but aside from the the national 
conversation. I want to go back to, uh, I want to quote um, uh, a comment from one of the uh, folks that you spoke to for this piece. And this is from, um, uh, this is uh, Kristen Sikursi? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so she's an Islamophobia researcher with the Bridge Initiative at Georgetown University. And she speaks about her quote on Islamophobia. You know, I, I love this quote. Uh, it says, the theory of radicalization is an, um, is an Islamophobic junk science theory. Uh, and that, and of course, everybody's not going not gonna to put it as, 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 as bluntly, you know, right. as, as she did. But when it comes to uh, academia, when it comes to our research hubs, and that's really where uh, the education, our higher educational system comes in because they have an impact on on policy. They have the time to go out and research and, and, and give that research to our, uh, you know, to our legislators. Um, so when it comes to uh, higher education, can you talk a bit about, because you spoke to uh, her, but you also spoke to some folks at, did you quote one person at USC? Yeah. Okay. So there is a, there, there's a tug of war. There's, there's a battle that's going on there, you know, as far as you know, where people stand. And uh, can you talk a bit about about that? Yeah. So it's interesting because uh, UIC actually is home to one of the kind of leading proponents of CVE and one of its leading uh, critics. Mm. And I had wanted to speak with one of uh, one of the proponents. He's a psychiatrist um, and uh, does a lot of research on CVE and has done a lot of work uh, with um, uh, like researching refugee communities. His name is Stephen Wine. Um, I had called him to um, sort of discuss CVE. I had called him initially, actually, to just uh, because I, I wanted him to sort of present to me what it was. Like I was, I, I, I figured he'd be the best person to actually tell me about what it is, since he he his, he's done so much research on it. And then I wanted to uh, obviously let him um, kind of uh, talk to me about some of the criticism and sort of address address that. But he didn't want to speak with me on the record. Um, he kind of said that he'd be happy to discuss it with me off the record and meet in person, but like that he didn't he didn't want to go on the record to to like be in the story um especially i think maybe because this the story you know concerned this lawsuit that uh was filed by the arab american action network which i guess we'll probably get to later but Mm -hmm. um but yeah so so much of the debate about it is happening on this academic level and basically there seems to be this these two um kind of camps uh on the one hand you have people who uh, who their their academic work takes um, you know people's sociopolitical context very seriously and takes that into account in their analysis of of um, how people behave uh, in groups and how the attitudes they take on and sort of how um, how, how our how our society functions and then um, you know there's there's this other approach that's sort of tr- looks at individuals more um, through a psychological lens and, and sort of in, maybe in a more individualized way. And it's, again, like I'm not an academic, it's hard for me to sort of, I feel like be very, very precise about this, but I will say that I am very familiar with how psychiatrists think. Both of my parents are psychiatrists and, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, just from kind of speaking briefly with with Dr. Wine on the phone and in general uh, trying to get a sense of his research just from reading about it through kind of other sources, I get the sense that there's 
this way in which um, the kind of pro-CVE camp, especially if it's being um, sort of framed and led by, by a psychiatrist, uh, might be looking at people, you know, in a kind of very behavioral context, at individuals in a behavioral context, and like, how is a person like what like that that a person is exhibiting behavior or beliefs that are um you know markers of social isolation or somehow antisocial attitudes in that um you know that there's a, a kind of agitation in someone or a disaffection or discontent with with uh their their you know the their country or their um, the community they might be living in. So, I mean, I just know that, like, knowing it from my personal background is, like, there's a way in which uh, people in that academic sphere tend to really minimize um, uh, the, the kind of a, a political process that might underpin someone's behavior and beliefs, that, 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 that there's a uh, – that, like, I, I would say that, like – the typical psychiatrist that I would know, and again, not even just my parents, but like I think a lot of psychiatrists look at a person who might be um, believing fervently enough in the sort of evils of U.S. foreign intervention that they would, you know, go to a picket line or write some sort of screed on Medium mm-hmm. um, or on Facebook or whatever. They might see that as like uh, somebody exhibiting somebody who's already. Um, somehow unstable, who mm-hmm. then is doing something that's like sort of charging them up more, or they're 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 going into this sort of um, martyr type mentality where they're gonna like lash out and put themselves out there and sort of express uh, uh, some sort of pathology that's already there underlying everything to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, the folks in the other research camp who are critical of CV say, well, the patho- the, there isn't like an, uh, a, a natural underlying pathology that people are afflicted with. It, like people are angry because of the political and social realities around them. Like people are. But there's a context to it. Right. And there's and, and that there isn't that there that that there that like um, a politicized response to what people perceive as an injustice isn't like uh, some sort of psychological aberration. It isn't a sign of, um, you know, of, of, of someone being maladjusted. Right. So, um, you know, which isn't to say that, like, I mean, the pe- people who do end up ultimately engaging in some sort of violence, like, it isn't to say that they don't go through that sort of political process or, or become outspoken or vocal, but... You can't, the point is that you can't predict it when somebody is going to become violent or why. And even the kind of folks in the pro-CVE camp, my understanding is that they, they don't claim that they're able to predict when or how someone would become violent. But um, what CVE does is that it says that it's worth watching mm-hmm. people with an eye of suspicion if they are, if they are getting kind of... Uh, politicized in a certain way if they're if they're responding if they're talking about things in a certain way if they are changing their clothing or their physical appearance in a certain way um and so therefore that's why i think that um the georgetown researcher sort of put it in 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 the way that she did calling this (laughs) junk science right right you know uh this is just an observation but I, i find it interesting that the responses to violence vary um when Religion is determined to be a factor. Mm. Uh, and if we look back, you know, mass shootings, 
we look at uh, Columbine or Newtown, Sandy Hook, uh, the response, the political response has always been one that looks at the um, looks at the firearm, right? Access to firearms is the is the problem, uh, and it is it deals very little with ideology, deals very little with mental health. Um, well, that's not really at the forefront, but in the conversation with with Muslims, uh, then it becomes, uh, you know, it's it's a quite a different conversation, uh, and it so you know, and I don't know what the the answer to I don't know what the answer is to that, um, but I do think that it is is deliberate. I don't think it's an oversight uh, because violence. If he couldn't predict the violence that is taking place in those other areas. Then why would people, you know, you know, what's the idea to to think that you'd be able to uh, predict it, uh, you know, in another, you know, that that really doesn't um, that doesn't sit well with me, you know, with my own logic. Um, Khaled Beydoun. He well before I move on. Did you have a response? Did you anything you want to say? To uh, that, no, or? I mean, it's just it, you're right that it's an interesting kind of contrast. And the thing is that like what it's what there's really I, I one way to look at it is definitely like. On one hand, all we're looking at is, well, this is an unstable person who had access to weapons. And on the other hand, we're saying, well, this is an unstable person who had access to dangerous ideas and some sort of like religious, you know, uh, like a religious ideas that that are that are then um, like pushing them over the edge. Like definitely the conversation um, centers more on religion. I mean, I think that people are also like the the uh, Orlando nightclub yeah. shooting. Like people did talk about like why was this person yeah. able to get you know AR-15s, but it also what it definitely didn't escape the discourse, like the conversation about him him being Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's interesting how like with this uh, earlier history of COINTELPRO, um, you know, definitely. What the gov- the go- the government surveillance was predicated on uh, non white people's access to ideas that were considered to be dangerous, and there, you know, I don't think it was there was as much an emphasis on on the religious aspect of it, but the idea no. was that these were ideas, uh, p- you know, people were politicized in a certain kind of way and what's dangerous and what's pushing them towards violence or anti-American activity or whatever, or, um, some high, some, you know, some kind of sub- subversive, uh, making them a subversive national security threat supposedly is, uh, is like, you know, it's, it's this, it's this type of ideology. It's a type of idea. So mm-hmm. now, um, Khaled Beydoun, um, he released a book earlier this year. Uh, the title is "American Islamophobia: Understanding the Roots and Rise of Fear." Uh, in it, he talks about the impact of CBE, and uh, he uses, I believe, the community, Muslim community in Dearborn, and how through CBE, one uh, the the Shia or or current t- uh, tensions that were already existing between the two communities, between the Shia and the Sunni. Uh, communities um, that they were exa- uh, exacerbated, and that was you, you know people making. I, I'm not I'm not certain. I think he might have said they were making false claims or you know saying that you know this person over here was uh, radicalized or intended to do whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, the, the main point was it was used in a way to to make a uh, contentious situation even more contentious. Right. Right. So, but when it comes to Illinois. 
what has been the uh, what has been the the the, the outcome uh, that 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 you have seen in, in your research and uh, uh, regarding CVE right here? How have organizations who are um, who are, who are you know opponents of it? How how have they responded? What have they done? Uh, what, what's the, the current state? Yeah, so we don't have a, uh, such a clear picture of the effects of CVE locally, primarily because there's very little information out there um, about how, uh, like, how the money is being used. And more importantly, like what is happening with the people who have been trained in CVE methodologies, you know, when they go back to the communities they come from. So um, the Illinois Criminal Justice Information Authority, which uh, received, um, you know, whose grant application survived the Trump, you know, White House turnover, and uh, they went out to receive the grant almost um, $200,000 last year. So they are... um, What's known about how they're administrating uh, the money is that they've been hosting... Um, like trainings, uh, sort of train the trainer trainings um, uh, with mental health professionals, with um, I think some some, uh, community leaders and like leaders from mosques in the Chicagoland area. And uh, the idea is that uh, they're providing this sort of frontline training and then the people they train can go and train more people in their community to sort of spot the signs of radicalization and and learn how to intervene in it. And um, but it, all of this is like pretty vague. Um, we don't really know what the effects of this has been. And this is why the Arab American Action Network is suing, um, you know, is now fa- fighting in federal court to get. Um, their freedom of information requests honored and to get records responsive to how the CVE program has worked. So they have FOIA'd the uh, Illinois Criminal Justice Information Authority, and they're having some issues with getting their FOIA response from this from, from ICJ, which is a state agency. Right. Um, so I think they're working with the um, Illinois Public Access Counselor, who's in the Attorney General's office, to try to resolve this the impasse. But they have not gotten the records they've requested, is the point. And they've also uh, requested records uh, from the FBI, DHS, and the Department of Justice to um, who all sort of participate in administering um, uh, this grant money and the program. Um, they've foiled, foiled all of those uh, agencies for records and basically did not have not gotten anything, got, you know, their requests were rejected or um, they were told they, they were they were like told that they would get the records and never got them. So now they're fighting in court to try to get them. And there is there is like a precedent of these kinds of lawsuits being successful. It just takes it just takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but their basic argument is that like we don't we don't really know about what's happening with CVE here. So we and that's why we like want these records to find out to find out in more detail and to have something some kind of documentary evidence that's not just the people who are running this program talking about it and making claims about it so um there is that and so i guess i would say that the other thing is that there is a precedent locally for sort of um you know to, to where we can see what the effects might be on a community when there is some sort of surveillance going on. And uh, so there was an interesting movie that just came out this year, a documentary film called The Feeling of Being Watched. Right. And um, it was by um, Asia uh, Bundawi, who 
made this film about her home community of Bridgeview, um, which was under like a massive FBI surveillance program for years before 9-11. It was uh, a program that started under the Clinton administration in the 90s. And uh, part of what her film does is not just kind of describe what this program is, but but uh, document the effect that the sort of psychological and community effects of having this like government presence in some of the some of what you consider to be like the safe spaces in your community and the sort of psychological effects of, of dealing with surveillance that you might not be sure is happening, but like you know that but but you but there's rumors people talk about this you hear you know people you hear this is like a th- like a, almost like an urban legend in a community that sort of everyone knows about and it and so the movie shows sort of the 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 effects of that over time so um yeah it's uh it's definitely i guess some people might argue that like well if nobody's getting arrested if if cve is just leading to you know school counselors having conversations with teens about like oh like why are you suddenly growing a beard you've Mm. never had one before and you know you're writing these essays that are very critical of the government like what's going on and maybe you you know when when it comes to that right the uh to to kind of conflate what we would look at as normal the normal results of heightened law enforcement um say if we're talking about um drug seizures Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can say that this is a result of better intelligence, uh, more having more uh, more law enforcement agents, you know, on the ground in particular, you know, uh, places or whatever. And because of that, we've been able to take more of these drugs off the street with CVE and this whole thing, this idea of being uh, of attacking an ideology, um, a religious ideology that supposedly produces violence. Uh, with this, I think, yeah, you mentioned this earlier, like, you know, the idea that if we don't have a rest, right, and we don't, uh, how do you actually measure the the impact? How do you actually measure the effect, effectiveness of, you know, of, of having CVE in place? Right. I mean, so, I, I, yeah, I think, I think people are kind of mixing apples and oranges. And I think that there's the, the reason why, like, my guess about the uh, CVE proponents' reactions to things like AAN's lawsuit or their general kind of street activism against CVE that they've been engaged in in the last year. I think that the proponents' reaction to that is that, or I'm imagining that the proponents of CVE might react to that saying things like, you know, like that this is... um, that these people are kind of these activists are sort of irrational, that they don't have all their facts right, and, and they're sort of like um, blowing all of this out of proportion. That bottom line is that we are just trying to help people who work with young people get better at identifying signs of distress and you know talking to them about what might be bothering them if the, if they think that they're that the young people are exhibiting some sort of signs of distress whether they be muslim or white or whatever black but i think that the fundamental reason the fundamental like problem with all of this is that if and this is i guess my understanding of the advocates core criticism is is that if we really cared about helping young people uh, not feel alienated or uh, understanding um, 
their behavior or or outrage at something, um, if we really cared about providing them with more mental health resources, like why do we need to do that through law enforcement agencies? Exactly. Why is it that it's the same thing that happens on a more local micro scale when like, you know, when like uh, sports activities in a low income neighborhood are sponsored by the police department. Mm-hmm. And not again, not, not necessarily saying that that's bad or that there's an ill intent, but it's like, why is it that the only way that some, especially poor people and poor people of color, get resources for kind of social services or or things like mental health or you know education resources? Why does it have to come through this funnel? of being connected to law enforcement. And right. I think that the advocates are suspicious of the intent of CVE because it sort of presents itself as as being concerned with youth mental health but is funded like f- funded by agencies that historically have had no interest in mental health whose whole raison d'etre is not to take care of mental health but to to do law enforcement and to, you know, conduct surveillance and to put people in prison or prosecute them. So mm-hmm. um, I think I understand that there's skepticism. And, um, you know, I think we do see it in Chicago, especially locally, when, you know, um, you know, certain neighborhoods get resources from the city in all various forms and others only get them through the police department. Right. And I think it's also a problem uh, when the institutions uh, – whether they're uh, mosques or community centers, uh, when these institutions no longer have that uh, appearance of independence uh, because they are, they are attached to law enforcement, uh, like I said, particularly in, uh, in communities of color, uh, where those no longer become safe havens. Uh, and it also, it also serves to destroy the bonds that you would normally have with folks there because you are worried about as a young person, right, not really being able to forecast and, and, and see things beyond the moment, uh, you don't see those people around you as really being there for you. So that is a tremendous, uh, it's a tremendous, uh, I think it's a disservice, and it it really takes apart the, uh, the ability of those institutions to serve. Right, and this is something that's been um, voiced as a concern by, uh, by like, uh, people, people, uh, who, who work in mosques, who work with youth, ever since CVE was piloted, and especially in Minneapolis, there was a there was like a letter that was signed by 50 different uh, Muslim organizations in the Twin Cities areas that that was like a big statement against CVE that was predicated exactly on, um, you know, partially on this sort of argument is that like this undermines the trust that we would have with youth in our community because you know, that they should not have to, like, if it ever, basically, if it ever gets out that, like, your, your, your imam Mm -hmm. is also, like, trained through CVE, I mean, you know, I'm just thinking back again, like, on being a teenager, and I just, it seems to me that, like, teenagers, especially because of, like, the sort of hormonal things that happen, you know, young people are extremely attuned to any kind of signs of anything, of something being fake or duplicitous or not real in some way. So, like, if you have, like, a, if you have, like, a trustworthy rapport with an imam at your mosque or a counselor at school, uh, which is, I think, already rare for a lot of young people who are skeptical of authority and, and, you know, their whatever leadership, to, to then, like... I'm just trying to imagine what it would do to you to then find out that, like, unbe- you know, suddenly 
it, you realize that they're somehow connected to CVE. You Google CVE. You see that it's a, you know, that it's a DHA sponsored thing. I just, I just could definitely imagine that seriously undermining the relationships that already exist um, in any community. Just because, I just feel like. Teenagers are not going to stand for that kind of thing. No. They don't like being told one thing They'll and then finding out, out something. You. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't have kids, but I just like I just remember myself as a teen, and it's like not you know I I, I don't think that um, that you can't win their trust back easily. No, um, no. I've got three moody teens <laughs> myself. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Maya, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much uh, for having thank me. Thank you very much. Uh, folks, check out the uh, full article. Uh, you can go to the chicagoreader.com and see it there. It's the problem with public health approach uh, to ideological violence. And you can follow Maya on Twitter at, where I've got you, uh, at M, yes, at M-D-O-U-K-M-A-S. Yep. M-D-O-U-K-M-A-S. Yes. That's right. All right. Thank you very much once again. Thank you for having me. All right. All right, Radio Islam family, we're going to take a short break, and we will return in a moment. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. America, we need to have a little talk. I don't know if you've noticed, but we got a lot of food in this country. A lot of peaches, a lot of corn, a lot of apples, a lot of everything. We've got so much food that we can't even eat it all. So if we got all this extra food, how are 17 million kids in America struggling with hunger? I just don't get it. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to the hungry kids who need it. They can get you food even if you live in Idaho or Alaska or somewhere crazy like that. This isn't complicated. We got extra food and we've got hungry kids. Feeding America's done the math. Now it's your turn. Support Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. I know you got internet on your phone, so what are you waiting for? We can't do it without your help. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872 806-0141 that's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Kalameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are just tuning in, uh, you missed a great discussion, but don't worry, you can go back and check it out wherever you get your podcast. Uh, but first and foremost, stop by RadioIslam.com. You can check out all the prior episodes. But we're on Apple Podcasts. 
TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. Get a little tripped up here. Uh, and also, make sure you are connected to us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. So, we had a pretty lively, uh, very interesting discussion with Maya Duke Masova, she's a staff writer with the Chicago Reader, and we were talking about a piece that she wrote that deals with CVE, countering violent extremism. Uh, and kind of want to touch on a few other concerns. Uh, and to do that, uh, I'm going. To, I am joined uh, as usual by the impressive one, assistant producer Ibrahim Beg. Assalamualaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Now uh, she brought up some really interesting uh, points, and this. The, the whole idea of CVE has been one that has been argued within the Muslim community. Um, you know, you got folks that are for it, for, folks that are against it. And I'm going to put on my, my imam hat, right? And I'll, I'll say how I see this in terms of dealing with uh, those people who, um, you know, who may look to me for, for, for counseling, uh, who may, you know, have to deal with, you know, the young and the seasoned and what that represents as far as a obstacle to trust and, and relationship building. So that's one of the reasons that I'm not, I'm not uh, in favor of it. Just one, right? And the other would simply be just the history of surveillance that has existed, um, that, the, uh, that the African-American community has been, uh, that is, you know, has been the object of. Uh, throughout our history. So the relationship with the law enforcement in that regard is one, it's a, a spotty at best uh, track record. But as an imam, certainly not, not, not uh, something that I would want to, uh, want to see uh, in, in the masjid. Now, what about yourself? What do you, how, how do you see this and what is it, what does it make you think about when you go, you know, uh, go to Friday prayers, go to, you know, go to, uh, to Juma and you think about, CVE think about uh, all that 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 entails yeah just as someone who regularly attends the mosque someone whose family has always been involved in the mosque in, in one way or another yeah um, of course it's not a surprise to me or to any of us I think that surveillance actually occurs in the mosque that's something that um, has taken different forms ever since 9-11 and even before 9-11 like we're learning now on a through this the movie that she was talking about which uh, talks about the surveillance in Bridgeview just right. on a massive scale that's what kind of the surprise is not the, su- the surprise isn't that it was happening before 9-11 or that you know it occurred in any way, but just the scale that it was happening on mm. um, so yeah so like surveillance itself whether it be in the form of directly in law enforcement uh, informants and agents and so on and now that sh- that shape has kind of shifted to include um, uh, people in the community that we like look up to, like imams and counselors and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so as was mentioned during the interview, this creates this problem with trust and this problem with legitimacy and, and going to the masjid. Um, and so now you're not, you know, kind of looking out not looking out of the corner of your eye, but there's this presence, there's this feeling of being washed and, you know, people are being washed inside the masjid or whatever. This kind of like a, we accept it as kind of a fact of life 
whatever you know as long it, it, it's from a civil rights perspective we shouldn't have to say this but we say kind of if you're not doing anything wrong mm-hmm. uh, you have nothing to worry about that kind of thing you know yeah. which which is a, a travesty when it comes to civil rights of course but it's kind of we accepted it as a fact of life you know mm-hmm. um, to now see this taking a different form of okay now it's going to be the imams or the counselors or the teachers or whatever who are putting in this kind of work and I'm sure the behind the scenes people like the informants they have not gone away you know they're, they're still going to be there not at all not at all the question is when does it end you know it takes this form before 9-11 after 9-11 more aggressive now it's this kind of taking a more passive form with some of the same biases embedded in it mm. when when does it end you know as, l- a, let as me, a Muslim in this country let me go back and uh, before tackling that question the I just go back to this idea of if you're not doing anything wrong, then you got nothing to worry about, right? Uh, there are plenty of folks in jail who didn't do anything, sure. right? Uh, but they were simply the object of, you know, they were object of investigation. They were, uh, you know, circumstance. Yeah, absolutely. Right? That's a good point. So what really concerns me is not just the, the presence of, of, of informants is not just the uh, uh, the this this hyper um, uh, surveillance that's taking place. Uh, it's it's what it does to the the community bonds, right? The trust that we should, you know, yeah. that you should be able to feel for those who worship with you, mm-hmm. that gets compromised on some level, right? Yeah. But going back to the the question, like when does it end? Well, it's certainly not going to end on its own. Um, because yeah. you know, it's a good it's, point. Yeah, it's I, not going to. I don't end think the government will eventually be like, "Well, okay, maybe we've done enough," and you know. Yeah, um, and I keep going back, uh, but in, but if we talk about not doing anything wrong, uh, and in the surveillance, you know, uh, it being just a part of a fact of life now. What happens when just your your resistance, right, your disagreement? that that is a thing that is being looked at or determined to be the thing that's wrong, right? And, you know, the fact that you disagree with foreign policy, you disagree with violence that's being, um, that, you know, that's being inflicted upon innocent uh, civilians, right, non-combatants, mm-hmm. right? If that's your concern uh, and and to be labeled as a, you know, now this person is a radical, there's, there's something wrong with that because, you happen to be Muslim and take that stance. Yeah, that's something one of really the, wrong with that. That was the big change that happened after 9-11, the noticeable change in the khutbas here, just being in the Chicago area, and I've read in other major cities too, Yeah, where the tone of the khutbah, mm-hmm. which is before 9-11, was very critical of U.S. foreign policy. All of a sudden, it dampened and it kind of, you know, became very much real sweet very vanilla yeah yeah until the the change started to come again which was not not to our credit yeah but when the when it became um acceptable in mainstream culture to criticize and uh be against the the invasion of iraq right, right. after it happened like several months after it happened and people were like okay where are the wmds now right um then when it became acceptable in mainstream culture again to criticize that war then you saw Muslims once again start to be critical of that type of foreign policy. Yeah. Um, 
I think this also speaks to the need for more political involvement um, because it's not going to end on its own. Uh, it's definitely going to it's going to have to be something that that changes from within the system. There'll have to be change agents. There have to be people um, who can who can really affect uh, a change and really offer some transparency too. That's because that, that's the other thing we talked about. Like, what are the metrics of a program like CVE? Where can you actually see that it's had an impact? And then can something can it be done in a way where it is not where it's not invasive? That it's not uh, led by law enforcement. Um, I think those are some of the the holes, some of the flaws that we see in a, in a in a in a program like that. But once again, I go back to the contention that these are things that are uh, by design. They are built this particular way uh, to function a particular way. Mm-hmm. So, all right, folks, uh, we thank you all for joining us. We have come to the close of another hour. Uh, we want to thank our uh, our sponsors, Zakat Foundation. And we thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. Uh, Your producers are myself and the impressive one. That's all you need to know. All right, we out here. No, we also want to thank our executive producer, Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, good people, we will see you next time, God willing. And we leave you now as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.